Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Well, good morning, East Hills family. Morning. Um, this isn't something we often do. In fact, I've never seen it done here, but we are going to uh, take a minute to have a kid's message before our message. So the kids are here, and in a minute, my son will be sitting here because I bribed him with M&Ms to help me. And I've never seen a kid's message that didn't involve M&M's as an object lesson, so we have M&M's. Are you, are you coming up here yet? All right. He looked right at me when I said it the first time, so I, I thought we were good. Here, you can start with those. And I would like to, um, I don't know how you feel about Burger King, but I'm a big fan of the gentleman in the Kelsey Burger King this morning. Uh, who, even though they weren't open, opened the drive through window, and when I said, I'm sorry to bother you, can I have a crown, gave me a crown. Uh, I was a little, dis- little disappointed they weren't open at 6, because um, they make a croissant breakfast sandwich that's delicious. But anyways, all right. Kids are mostly in the front row, some are over there, it's okay. And while this is the kids' part of the message, I encourage the rest of you to pay attention as well. So... Jesus tells this story where there is a king. Everybody say, hi, king. This is King Josiah. Not like the King Josiah, but a King Josiah. Not to be confused. And this king has people that work for him. And one of these people that works for the king has borrowed M&Ms from the king. Just lots and lots of M&Ms. How many M&Ms do you guys think are in here? A million. Probably not. 350? 100? 150. 600. Joe? 552. 552. That's very specific. 721. Well, for prices right in it, you're the closest without going over. According to the back of the bag and how many I put it in here, there are about 2,000 M&Ms in here. No. Right? <laughs> Spent more money on M&Ms today than I have in my lifetime. And they're a fine candy. They're just not the best. So one of the workers that works for the king has borrowed so many M&Ms. And that worker... The king comes to him and says, hey, what's up? And the worker's like, hey, I'm sorry that I owe you all this money. And the king says, well, it's a lot of money. I'm going to throw you in prison and your wife and your kids. And I'm going to sell everything you have so that you can pay that debt. And that worker falls down before the king. He's like, no, 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 please, please, king, good king Josiah, who is benevolent and kind and really handsome. You look like your dad. Um, Please, will you, and, and this, this good king forgives this massive debt. This massive debt is forgiven by the good king. And then that, that worker, he goes and finds another worker, one of his fellow workers, and that worker owes him an M&M, which is a weird thing to say. Have you ever said an M&M? Yeah, you guys didn't know that was fun, did you? So this, the, the worker that was forgiven this much goes and finds another worker that owes him one M&M. He says, you pay me that M&M you owe me right now. He starts choking him. He says, you give me that M&M that you owe me. And that, that second worker that owes one M&M, he falls down. He says, please give me time. Let me, let me do something. Let me repay you. And the worker that was forgiven so much says no, and he puts him in jail. 
Does that seem fair? No. Does that seem like how he should have repaid? No. He didn't. The, the other workers found out and they told the king what this worker had done who owed this and was forgiven but wouldn't forgive one him and him. And, well, there goes the object lesson. So the king put that first worker in jail, the worker that had been forgiven. Jesus tells this story about how we're supposed to forgive because we've been forgiven. This represents like all our sin, all our debt to God, everything we've done wrong and everything we will do wrong. And we've been forgiven this. So when we interact with other people who might owe us one M and M, they've done something wrong to us, it doesn't really compare to what we've done when we sinned against God and he forgave us. So this week as you go, remember that a jar this size holds about 2,000 M&Ms. That's not actually important. But remember that God loves you, and he forgave you, and he wants you to show that forgiveness to other people. All right, now I'm going to dismiss you guys, but also, it's not really a good object lesson <laughs> unless you get to eat M&Ms, so Allie, you can take these with you. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Josiah. You did great. I just tripped. I'll pray and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you for your love and for your grace. God, thank you for your word. Help us to be challenged by your truth and your love today, that we might love you and know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 18. Matthew, this is not on. It's not on yet. It is on now. Hello. Thank you. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, So who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this is my in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away... It would be better for him if a heavy milestone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses were inevitab- will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. If it, it is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet be th- and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. Thank you, Annabelle. So there I was standing at the cell door in a unit at the Callis County Jail having an argument with a grown man about a cookie. Now, if you don't know, I used to work at the jail, so I was, I was on the outside of the cell door. He was on the inside of the cell door. I had uh, spent three years or so working at the Cows County Jail with my dad. And, um, yeah, so we, we talked about a cookie. And the issue that day was that uh, this inmate said that he didn't have a cookie in his lunch. Remind you, grown man. Uh, no cookie in his lunch. Now, now, a couple things you should know about this story. Number one... Um, I had, I had, we had, we had, we had given lunch to, to this inmate and then we're working back down the row at the top there and we're like three rows down before he lets me know that he doesn't have his cookie. Um, and 
It doesn't take very long to eat and or hide a cookie. If you don't believe me and you come to the park today, bring me a cookie and I will prove that it doesn't take very long to eat and or hide a cookie. The second thing is, as corrections officer, before we feed lunch, we feed a sack breakfast and a sack lunch and a hot dinner. And usually the hot dinner is pretty okay. If you work graveyard, you get to eat it. Um, but before we hand out these, these bags of food to, to the inmates, uh, all the corrections officer go out into the circle that leads into all the pods and we check every bag because we have to make sure that everybody has their, their milk, their sandwich, their cookie, their chips, and their fruit because we don't want people to have things and not have things. So like we, we check all these bags. So we were pretty sure that this man had received a cookie um, and um, not wanting to give him an extra cookie because A, I didn't have any, and B, it's likely he was lying to me about whether or not he had a cookie. Um, I let him know. I was like, hey, I'm sorry that you didn't get a cookie. I will bring you a complaint form, and you can fill this out, and I'll get in trouble for not giving you a cookie, and I'm okay with that. He didn't think that was a good answer. When I made my next round, I did bring him the form because I wanted to be a man of my word, and he took the form, and then in a, a fairly loud voice, he's like, this isn't a cookie. I can't eat this. I'm like, I, I wasn't hoping that you would. Um, and then after that, he ate the paper that I gave him. Sometimes when things don't go our way, we can react in childish ways. And maybe you're like, oh, that guy's an inmate. Maybe that's just how he is. Um, I'll tell you a story about myself. Um, and this is a story from a long time ago, like a month ago. Um, <laughs> about a month ago, I was wearing some glasses similar to these. Um, these aren't prescription. They don't help me see better. They just help me look better. And my wife's not a big fan. Of, like, she has to wear glasses. So when people wear glasses just for fun, it bothers her. And I know that, so I don't wear them very often. But I was wearing them. And... Um, she was upset about it, and instead of like just taking them off, which is pretty easy, or having a conversation, um, for some reason I was frustrated that day, and I took them off and then I twisted them in half. Thank you, Annabelle, for letting me borrow your glasses, because I don't, I don't have any more, because I was a big baby, so instead of a conversation, I broke them in half. Sometimes when things don't go our way, or the way we think they should, we can act in a childish way. Um, my name is Wayne. If you don't know me, my name is Wayne. If you do know me, I love Jesus. I make videos, and I am happy to be hanging out with you guys today. Thanks for taking some time to hang out as we read God's Word and worship the Lord together. Um, so here's a question, and this one's um, hypothetical. You don't have to yell back answers. What is the difference between being a childish Christian and having a childlike faith? What is the difference between having a childlike faith and being a childish Christian? Now here's a question that you can yield back answers. What are some things that we associate with being childish? Tantrums. Temper tantrums. That was the first on my list because I threw one. What else? Diapers. Diapers. Selfishness. That's absolutely one on my list. Uh, not wanting to take naps was on my list. Big fan of naps. I might take one today. Um, being concerned only about yourself, not submitting to authority. And while childish generally has a negative tone to it, I think there is great value in us having faith like a child. A child's faith is innocent. A child's faith is pure, trusting in the goodness and the joy of God. A child's faith has room to grow, to ask questions, even to doubt. I think sometimes as we mature or just get older, um, we don't like that doubt. We don't like that wondering. We want... Uh, we want certainty, and sometimes I think even in the church we make certainty an idol. We'd rather be certain about what we know about God than just know God. 
And I think there's value in just being able to wrestle with and live in the mystery of a God who is far beyond our capability to understand. My guess is that if you ask any six-year-old if they completely understand God, they would tell you no, because they know they don't completely understand God. But there are some grown men who would probably tell you they do completely understand God, and they're, they're probably wrong. Um, so that childlike faith, that wonder, that ability to doubt and be honest. And then according to Jesus, a childlike faith is humble. According to Jesus, a childlike faith is humble. At the start of Matthew 18, thank you, Annabelle, so much for reading that for us this morning, we see the disciples wanting to know who is the greatest in the kingdom. In a parallel passage in Mark chapter 9, it says, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and a servant of all. Then Jesus called the kid to him and, and gave that speech again. And there are other times in the Gospels where we see the twelve arguing about who the greatest would be in in Mark chapter 10, James and John asked Jesus if they can sit on his right hand and on his left hand when Jesus is in glory. And it's interesting to me that this who is the greatest question, and Jesus answers it with bringing up a child, um, because we see Jesus choose 12 disciples out of the many that were following him to be apostles, and we see Jesus choose three from those 12 to have some special roles or a special place there. Last week, Sky talked about the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John going up on the mountain. In Luke 8, we see Jesus take Peter, James, and John up with him when he brings back to life Jairus' daughter. And in Matthew 26, when Jesus goes into the garden to pray before he's arrested, he goes with all the disciples, and then he takes Peter, James, and John a little bit farther than the rest of them to pray with him. So we see different levels of ministry involvement, different levels of responsibility, so that's not the issue. I think the issue is seeking the position. The, the issue is seeking that place of power. Uh, whenever I look at these verses that talk about Peter, James, and John, I always, always think about Andrew, and I kind of feel bad for Andrew. If you're not familiar with Andrew, um, in, in, the, in John's gospel, uh, Andrew is one of John the Baptist's disciples who John sends to follow Jesus. And uh, Andrew goes and follows Jesus. He follows Christ, and then Andrew goes to find his brother. Andrew's brother is Peter. So Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus, and then didn't end up, did, not, did not end up in the inner circle of three. Um, I came across a writing by uh, Leonard Bernstein of the New York Philharmonic. It says, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. And I feel like Andrew was probably the kind of guy who understood this, who was like, hey, I'm here to follow Jesus. I don't need to be in the top three. He made the top 12, probably the top 11, given one of the top 12. Um, but I feel like Andrew was this guy who maybe understood that I'm here to follow Jesus, and I don't need to be in charge, and I don't need to be a leader. Again, the issue wasn't uh, people being involved or serving at different levels or even have different levels of maturity, but it was the disciples' concern for power and authority. And if you're taking notes either on paper or on an iPad or on a Galaxy tab or on any other such device or in your noggin, in addition to looking at what Jesus taught this morning, we're going to be looking a little bit about how Jesus taught. Because we are everyday people following Jesus every day, I think looking at how Jesus was teaching can help us as we walk alongside other believers, as we disciple people. Uh, we can learn 
the, the what that Jesus taught, but also how he was teaching. And the first thing is that we see Jesus was using an object lesson. The disciples want to know who is the greatest. And he brings the child into their midst and sits him down to explain it to them. Jesus uses something so that they can see and understand his teaching. In Mark 10, uh, another time that Jesus brings a child into the midst of his teaching, verse 13 says, People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever has not received the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Now the the parallel passage to Matthew 18 is in Mark 9, which means like oftentimes the disciples probably didn't completely understand what was happening because in chapter 9, Jesus brings in a child uh, and talks about you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in chapter 10, Jesus is blessing the children and the disciples try and get rid of the children. Um, always gives me a little bit of hope to see the disciples being slow learners, being one myself. Jesus is teaching about being like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the, the disciples wonder who's the greatest, and Jesus gives them a criteria for even entering, and then never cri- another criteria for being the greatest. The Life Application New Testament Commentary, which is my second favorite commentary name to say, it says of these verses, they were to have servant attitudes, not being childish, arguing over petty issues, but childlike with humble and sincere hearts. God's people are called to humility and unconcerned for social status. Those who persist in pride and ladder climbing for the sake of status in this world will never get into the kingdom of heaven. By contrast, those who in humility realize their need of a savior, accept him, and move into the world to serve, not only enter the kingdom, but will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. True humility means to deny oneself, to accept a position of servanthood, and to completely follow the master. And I think for me, sometimes whenever I think about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, I think about eternity with God. But God's kingdom isn't only the future of eternity with God in his presence, but it's here and it's now. Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, I think for me especially, and maybe for you, it's important to remember that that's like, like as we follow Christ now, we are living in the kingdom of heaven as well as in eternity. So this call to be humble like a child impacts our life now. To humble ourselves like children is a call to Christ followers that has an impact on God's kingdom on earth and in eternity. So by now you might be thinking, is he going to eat all those M&Ms later? No, I, I plan to share them. But you also might be asking, how do we humble ourselves? And I've heard it said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I said that right, right? Okay. Not thinking less of yourself. Uh, to be humble isn't to think that you don't matter or you're not important or you're no good at things. You do matter. But to be humble is to think of ourselves less. Uh, Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. He then goes on to talk about Christ when he gave up his deity to live as a man and to come to earth and to die for our sins. Humility may mean that we have to lay aside our quote-unquote rights or give something up to see someone else flourish. The kingdom of God does not need strong people to win fights for us, but humble people seeking and trusting a good and loving God. How many of you love babies in church? Or just babies in general? I love babies in general, but especially love babies in church. Um, I don't mind when babies cry in church. I don't mind when babies fuss in church. Uh, I sometimes will hold a baby in church. I got to last week uh, hold baby Barry, and that was fantastic. Babies in church are fantastic. Um, and most of you in here either are or have been babies at one time. Did you guys know that babies, it's true, right? Babies are completely dependent on someone else. For their food, for their clothes, for where they sleep, for, like at the start, like how they get anywhere. Um, babies are completely dependent, dependent, I know my words, dependent. Babies need adults. And as followers of Christ, we need to rely on God. Um, babies, when, when Jesus says to humble yourself like a child, we think of those childlike things like childlike wonder or that, that innocent faith. But, but to humble ourselves like a child is to truly be dependent on God for everything. Um, another part of Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And, and I wrestle with this a little bit because I don't know about you, but my pantry has food in it. And like we, and by we I mean my wife, go shopping every Friday. And if, if we missed a Friday, like we would still have food to eat. Like it wouldn't be the food we want to eat. It would be the food that we haven't eaten that's still not bad. But my pantry always has the food I eat. And, and I know, I know in my head that that's because the Lord is the provider of everything I have. I know that God gives me the breath and the strength and everything I need to do the work that gets the paycheck that buys the food. But so often I don't, Think about that. I'm not, I'm not always aware of my dependence on God. Too often I can rely on myself to earn the money, to buy the food, to eat the food. And one thing that I don't do as often as I would like to that helps me rely on God is fasting. And fasting is a practice for me where I, where I give up food, uh, generally for a, a day, a 24-hour period, and I spend more time uh, reading my scripture, praying and listening to God in that day, and truly rely on Him. Um, it seems like a better practice than being homeless for relying on God, uh, for me at least. Um, so that practice helps me to truly rely on God. Like I said, it's not something I do as often as I would like, but it, it gets me in that place where I can truly look at, at who God is that, and trust that he can sustain me. We can only truly belong to the kingdom of God when we come to him in our weakness, in our dependence, and in our need. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven in our own strength and our own self-sufficiency. I think, uh, for me, sometimes I don't like to admit that I need others. I don't like to admit that I can't do things or take care of myself or provide for myself and my family. But this call of Jesus to humble ourselves like a child is to admit and to, to truly live in a way that shows our dependence on God. The call of King Jesus is not to power, but to complete dependence. The call of King Jesus is not to power or position, but to complete dependence. And the second way of the three ways that we'll talk about today that Jesus taught is by the use of hyperbole 
which I often pronounce hyperbole because that's what it looks like. And my brain says it before I realize it's wrong. It's bold, so I wouldn't do that today. Uh, hyperbole, exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. In verse 6 of our text the Annabel read, it says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offense, for offenses will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. Now Jesus is not promoting self-harm or mutilation. He's using, he's using an extreme example to show the seriousness of causing people to fall away. The seriousness of causing fellow believers or younger believers or less mature believers to fall away from the faith. So he uses that extreme example of cutting off hands or hanging a millstone around your neck and, and all the commentaries say, he says a heavy millstone, which means it's like, it's not the ones the women would use, it's the one the donkeys would pull, um, which I'm not a very strong swimmer, so I think that would do it for me. But Jesus is, is making a point with these extreme examples. Um, there's other places where Jesus talks about a speck and a log in your eye, and he talks about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin. And it's meant to lead us to see the seriousness of what we're doing, not to actually cut off our limbs. There were uh, some in the Jewish faith at the time that believed you entered into eternal life in the state that you died. So if you had lost hands and legs, like that's how you were for eternity, which would make this hyperbole even more serious um, to them, because if, if they cut off a hand, that's that's lasting forever. So there's a seriousness of how um, we interact with the, those who are discipling, those who are following behind us. From hyperbole, we move to the parable. Everybody say parable. parable. Good, good. You guys did really good at that. Thank you. Um, the third of Jesus' communication tools that we're going to look at today, and a parable according to Google, is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson as told by Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus used stories of farming, of shepherding, of kings and servants, things that the folks of that time would have generally understood. Um, in Matthew 18 in the middle, he talks about how the shepherd would leave the 99 sheep to go after the one. And most commentaries would let you know, like, they usually had multiple shepherds. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't unresponsible to leave the 99. They left them with the shepherds and went after that one that had escaped. Um, if we were to tell some parables, in Calais County, in these days, we might uh, be able to talk about um, maybe following Jesus in different seasons of life and talk about shift work because we have a lot of shift workers. Uh, we make a lot of paper. Um, we have a beach close to us. We can talk about God's majesty and the ocean and the rocks. Jesus uses these everyday examples of things that people had a general understanding of to make his point. A parable can also lower our defenses making it so that we see the truth before we realize that we have to apply the truth to ourselves. Now, we see this in the Old Testament when Nathan the prophet comes to confront King David after his sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. Nathan tells the story of, of two men, one poor man that had one sheep and one rich man that had many, many, many sheep. And the rich man has a visitor and, and, and the rich man takes the one sheep from the poor man to feed his visitor. And David gets really mad. He's like, that guy should die. 
and pay back four sheep. Which maybe they should happen in the other order. You should probably pay back. But anyways, David is really, really mad. And then Nathan says, you, you are that man. Um, but David was convicted and, and really angry from hearing that parable before he realized that Nathan was talking about him and his own sin. Jesus uses a powerful parable in the back half of Matthew 18. It says, Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. At the start of this account, Peter likely thinks he is being very generous. As most rabbis would have said, you need to forgive three times. Uh, Peter, Peter doubles it and adds one, giving that, that number, that seven, that number of completeness that we see throughout Scripture. So Peter thinks, all right, I've learned that I'm supposed to be humble like a child. I've learned about some church discipline. I've heard that story about the sheep. Um, I'm going to show Jesus how good I am. Hey, Jesus, how many times should I forgive something? Like, like seven times? And Peter thinks he's already being ridiculous. And then Jesus says, actually, 70 times seven, or some translations say 77 times. Uh, either way, it's, it's a lot more times. And then Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a king and tells the story of the two servants. According to the InterVarsity Press biblical background commentary, my favorite commentary name to say, in one period, the silver talent represented 6,000 drachmas, or 6,000 days' wages for an average Palestinian worker. That's one talent, and this man owed 10,000 talents. I didn't have enough money to get as many M&Ms as I should have. I think it made the point, but I didn't, I didn't need 10,000 times all those M&Ms. That's what this man owed and was forgiven. And then the servant that owed him something owed 100 denarii, or about 100 days' wages, which is fairly insignificant in comparison. This is, to me, an unfathomable difference between... Also, I chose to say unfathomable. Like, that wasn't a word for my kids to say. It's just, it's a good word. That is an unfathomable difference between what was forgiven and what he then sought harshly to retrieve for himself. Um, many Jewish teachings regarded our sins as debts before God. 
the same Aramaic, Aramaic word was used for both of those. That, that 10,000, also in some commentaries I read, said that 10,000 was like the biggest single number that they could use in the Greek at that time. So that represents all of our sin before God. Everything that we've done to separate us from God that God has forgiven. And we cannot repay this. But we can find forgiveness for our debt of sin because of the price that Christ paid on the cross. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. We are forgiven so that we can forgive. When we humble ourselves and trust God's goodness, we will truly be living in the kingdom of heaven. This servant that was forgiven so much, instead of trusting the goodness of the king, went and demanded that he was repaid. And I don't know why. Maybe, maybe he didn't trust that he was truly forgiven. Maybe the king would change his mind, so he needed to start collecting on his debts so that he would be ready to pay his debt next time. Maybe he was too proud to accept the grace and was going to try and repay the king anyways. But God has paid the debt and is inviting you and me to live in the kingdom of heaven, both now and for all eternity. When we humble ourselves and trust God's goodness, we will truly be living in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you for your love and for your grace, God, for your goodness, that you have forgiven us so much. God, I pray that you would help me and you would help us to trust that you are good as we come to you dependent, relying on you. God, that we remind us of your goodness, of your grace. God, help us to seek you and trust you. God, this week, help us to love you with everything that we have and to show your love to those around us. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name, amen. Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.